sing with you this morning. Uh, if you're newer with us or a guest with us, uh, my name's Kevin Perry. I'm actually, I'm not a teaching pastor. I'm the worship arts pastor. And uh, this officially begins, I mean, most of you probably know, one of our teaching pastors taking his sabbatical, Monty Walden, first sabbatical in 19 years. So today begins the day when we as a church really start experiencing his sabbatical. As, uh, <laughs> as, uh, as I feel in, what I'm really excited about is, is for some of the, the men later on this summer that you'll get to hear that you, you don't, maybe don't get to hear very often or perhaps ever. Be really fun. This is a very, very kind church um, uh, to serve in this way this morning. So I'm your servant and you guys are always very kind and encouraging in that. I realize that even though I stand up here a lot, most Sundays I know just being out in the community that there's so many of you I don't know. And in return, so many that, that, that you, you might not know a lot about me. Um, I, this next month, my wife Alicia and I celebrate 19 years of marriage. Thanks. We were married when we were 13. It was... Uh, <laughs> It was beautiful. I couldn't drive on my honeymoon. That was weird. Um, and uh, we have three daughters now. Got a girl tribe going. Back a few years ago, before we had our third child, we took our first family trip to Disney World. And I, I managed to find this coupon, this online code for, uh, we actually stayed in a Disney hotel. Sometimes, you know, that can be just outrageous. But I found this online code and this coupon. And we had a gr pretty good deal, a pretty average rate for a hotel and stay on the property and all those benefits. But when we got there, it quickly dawned on me, you'll remember this, quickly dawned on me. He's like, huh, we're getting the extra special treatment here. I mean, we had two people ride up in the elevator with us and they introduced us to our 24-7 concierge and our lounge and we had breakfast you know, provided and wine and cheese hour and snacks at night and our room was amazing and it dawned on me, oh my gosh, this is like club level of this hotel. Like this is the most expensive room in the hotel. I booked like garage view out my patio and suddenly we're at club level. So I, I run downstairs, you'll remember this, I run downstairs uh, and go to the front desk. And there's this kind man there, international, some kind of warm international accent. And I said, hey, I, I need your help. I said, the, the room is great. I said, but I got a little bit of problem. He's like, yes, how may I help you, Mr. Perry? And I said, I got a little problem. Um, we're in club level. It's great. Love it. But we booked like, you know, parking garage view level. We, we're like, this is where we are. This is what I paid for. And I was just honest with him. I said, I, we can't afford this. So what do we do? And so the guy, you know how they do, the guy looks at his computer, he's like, give me just a moment. He starts typing and he's typing and it's quiet and my, my heart is racing. And all of a sudden he looks up, he says, no extra charge. And I'm like, no extra charge. I said, let me, and I became a communication expert in that moment. I was like, now let me, let me repeat back to you what I think I'm hearing. <laughs> just so we're on the same page here. Couldn't do this in 19 years of marriage, but this moment with this, this, <laughs> this this Disney man, like we were, we were symbiotic. So I said, we get to stay here club level, but we're only paying this. Is that what you're saying? No extra charge. He's like, no extra charge. So I, I did what anybody would do. I turned around and ran out of there before something changed. <laughs> and we lived it up the rest of the week like the Beverly Hillbillies. It was awesome. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. C.S. Lewis. In his book, God in the Dock, had this quote. This is probably the shortest quote you'll ever hear by C.S. Lewis. Expectations change everything. Expectations change everything. We were expecting run-of-the-mill hotel room. We got club level. 
And actually, C.S. Lewis in the book, he, he uses the illustration of a hotel room. He says, you know, if you're expecting a jail cell and the doors fly open and it's a standard hotel room, well, you're thrilled out of your mind. But if you've paid for the presidential suite, for the honeymoon suite, and the doors fly open, and in his words, if you don't see a luxurious shag carpet and champagne and hot tubs and a humongous bed, well, you are outraged at the injustice. And what's the difference? Expectation. Expectations change everything. Expectation is defined as, as the belief about how things will be. This is how reality works. This is where belief and the real world kind of rub up against each other, right? This is where they come into friction with one another. It's impossible to live without expectation, right? I mean, we just, all the time, we are constantly expecting things around us. I mean, you expect people are gonna drive on the right side of the road. You expected this morning there'd be a nine o'clock and 11 a.m. service. So it's, it's impossible to, to navigate life without expectations always kind of swirling around us. So here's the question this morning in your outline there. Think about this moment. What are your expectations of God? What are your expectations of God? What do you expect of God? Let me put it a different way. What do you expect in a life of faith? What do you expect in Christianity, following Christ? Now, we all have expectations. We won't take the, 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 the pious way out of this question saying, well, we, of course I expect nothing of God. God is sovereign and I'm not. No, no, no. We all have expectations as simple. And some of them are good as simple as saying, hey, I, when I sit down with the Bible, I expect this is going to be good for me. When I go be with God's people on Sunday, I'm expecting that is good for my soul and my growth. So there's all kinds of expectations. We can't navigate faith without expectations. But here's the extra dilemma for a Christian. All of life's expectations become expectations about God. Meaning, like you and I, we have expectations about vocation, about our health, about family, about friends, about church, finances, everything under the sun. And those things get tethered back to God, right? Because God's our good, good father. God is over all things. God cares. He cares about the details of our life and he's sovereign over all. So all these expectations we have around us in life, are, we end up looking back at God saying, okay, uh, hello, do you see what's going on here? You see how this is all playing out? So expectations about life become expectations about God. So you and I have those expectations. And of course you and I wrestle with that. The, you know, the Bible's full of people wrestling with their expectations of God. Think about Israel. Israel delivered from Egypt, gets out in the desert, and what do they say? Lord, you brought us out here to kill us. What does that mean? Well, they expected things to be going a little differently than they were. Take the psalmist, like Psalm uh, 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 22, Psalm 13. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Translation, God, I expected you to be with me in all this mess a little differently than you are. What's up? And then in today's passage in Luke 7, I dare say the least likely person in the New Testament, the, the guy you would expect last to be wrestling with expectations of God, walks right up to the brink of, of just abandoning his trust in him. And why? because Jesus wasn't what he was expecting. Nothing can shipwreck our faith like expectations, but the good news is nothing can sure up our faith like expectations. So with that in mind, get your Bible and let's turn to Luke 7 this morning together. Luke 7, starting at 
verse 18. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Now, what was the thing the disciples were reporting back to John? Well, it's everything we've covered so far. It's exactly what we saw last week. It's, it's these miracles that Jesus is performing. It's, it's, Jesus was the first person to use PowerPoint because he's using his power to point to who he is. You know, raising the dead, healing the sick. So all these things gets reported back to John. And this starts out in a really embarrassing way. This is kind of embarrassing because John doesn't seem to know who Jesus is anymore. John, the forerunner of Christ, is wavering on who Christ is. I mean, let's just remember here, this is the guy prophesied back in Malachi 3 would be the forerunner. This is the guy who, remember just a few chapters ago, leapt in the womb when he met Jesus in the womb. The Holy Spirit came upon him in the womb. This is the guy, oh my goodness, this is the guy who baptized Jesus and we know testified that he saw the spirit descend on him like, like a dove. This is the guy who at this point, this climactic moment in Jesus' ministry is Jesus' ministry is getting off the ground. He comes up to him and says, uh, who are you again? Not what I was expecting. Not a great way to start a global movement by having your PR guy who's in jail at this point uh, doesn't know who you are anymore is wondering and wavering about who you are exactly. So, how in the world did this happen? How in the world did John's trust in Jesus get so shaken? Now, further down in the passage, we got the same old song and dance with the Pharisees and the Old Testament experts. They're rejecting Jesus too. And I wonder, do you ever just like back up from the text and just think about this? Like, how is that? Why is that? Why do, do the Jews as Israel, why do the people who were set up to trust Jesus more than anybody else, were set up so perfectly to trust him and know who he is, how is it they reject him? Or at least in John's case, come up and are struggling with knowing who he is exactly. Well, I wanna answer that this morning, explore that and give you a partial answer. There's several layers to this, but we wanna explore that this morning. But to do that, we're gonna to have to do a little bit of history. History. I was never a big history guy. Some of you might not be either, but we need to do a little bit of history. And I think this is important because this will help the context for this passage, but I really think this is really cool. And when you, when you think about these things, opens up not just the Gospels, but further into the Epistles and then Acts and Romans 9-11, this constant thing going on in the, the, new, in the young church of Jews and Gentiles and the tension and the rejection there. So we got to do a little bit of history this morning. And I know history will bore some of you to tears. I don't blame you. We could go with this title, a review of cultural climate, social factors, influence in Second Temple Judaism. We could do that. <laughs> I could break out some timelines and charts, but I'm gonna give you guys the choice this morning. You remember those choose your own adventure books when you're growing up? This is a choose your own adventure sermon. So, Monty's gone. <laughs> We're gonna lighten it up a little bit, so. We can do this the serious way or we can do this the fun way. Any, all in favor of the fun way, say aye. Aye. I love y'all. <laughs> Honestly, I only prepared the fun way. So <laughs> this, this is how it was always gonna be. So let me, 
let me get my, uh, my clicker here, and I'm going to take over the slides here for a moment for this presentation. Now, on Facebook, put that title. This morning, we heard a lecture on the review, and man, Monty will be climbing a mountain. He'll think, wow, that's powerful what they're doing home while I'm away. Um, all right, let me see if I can uh, click on. Okay, looks like my, uh, my, my, uh, my clicker's not going to work, Daniel, so I'm going to cue you on slides. Um, all right, so we're going to do Jewish history, but click it one more time. We're going to do it. Meme style. <laughs> you know those little videos and pictures with the text on Facebook that are so funny? So we're going to do that this morning together. Help us remember and kind of get into a little bit of history today. So we're going to start at 167 BC. Around 167 BC, we see this. Next slide. We see Syria. <laughs> the nation of Syria decides that they have had it with Israel. King Antiochus Epiphanes says, you know what? I'm wiping Israel off the map. They're done. Everything about them, everything special about them, everything unique about them, I am going to wipe off the planet. How amazing is it that this one people group in the world has heard this story over and over and over? So this was like a Holocaust moment for Syria. They are, for, for Israel, they are being threatened with their very survival. And what happens? Next slide. Well, there's a... a, a a guy by the name Mattathias, Mattathias, and he's like the Katniss Everdeen of Israel. <laughs> Katniss is a girl, he's a guy, he's Jewish, it was 2,000 years ago. Other than that, he's like the Jewish Katniss. <laughs> and he decides, you know what, we're not going out like this. And he actually strikes out and kills a Syrian guard and a fellow Jew who's dedicating a pig on an altar to an to, a multiple, to a, uh, uh, one of their multiple gods right outside the temple. Huge blasphemy. And Mattathias is like, no, we're not doing this. And he strikes out. And what happens, next slide, is that all of Israel goes straight up Hunger Games on Syria. <laughs> they revolt and they are fighting for their lives. And you know what happens? Next slide. They win. <laughs> they won. Winning. In this moment, it's, this is where actually Hanukkah comes from and lighting the menorah because that's how Judaism remembers this time where, where they were fighting for their life and, and Judaism was sustained. They won. And they think that this is the golden age. This is the golden age of Israel. This is where we're, we're finally going to realize everything that's, that's good about us, everything on God's purposes for us. We are going to take over now and, and be everything we were meant to be. Except, next slide, the next 100 years did not go like that. <laughs> Israel going to Israel. And they, for the next 100 years, from about 160 about to about 60, they just completely fall apart. It says that it's a civil war breaks out, literally brother fighting brother, and things get so bad that they're not taken over by Rome. They have to invite Rome in because they're just about to collapse. Hugely embarrassing. Next slide. They have to basically bring Rome in just to survive. And they're thrilled about that. <laughs> they are thrilled. Thrilled to be back under Gentile rule and to see Romans all over their land, all over their city. And then last slide, because they think back and they know, good gracious, God 
tried to warn us. God tried to tell us all the way back in Deuteronomy 28, if you don't keep my covenant, if you don't keep the law, if you're not faithful to your part of the covenant, Israel, you will be lorded over by other nations. You will be occupied by other nations. You will see Gentile nations all in your land. And that's exactly what happens. So imagine yourself for just a moment. Imagine you're a Jew living around right about the time Jesus comes on the scene. And you look around your land and you see Romans everywhere. You see Gentiles all in your cities, all in your land, Gentiles in authority over you and your king. And you just know this is because we failed. This is because God has judged us for not keeping his law, not keeping his covenant. What are you going to do to fix it? What do you do at that point? If you failed because you haven't been keeping the law and haven't been keeping the covenant, what do you do? You double up, say, okay, we're going to do this thing. We're going to do it right. We're going to try and pursue the covenant and then pursue the law as best we can because, and what we see, the reason they end up doing it is not just to be obedient and faithful to God. They want them Gentiles gone. They want their place back. They want their home back. They want to be in control of their own destiny again. And every time they see a Roman or a Gentile walking around, they think, we got to get them out of here. And that's the tension on the scene and the context when Jesus is born and Jesus' ministry begins. That's the tension and the climate going on in this area. That's, that's the climate and the context that John is asking this question in and why he's wavering. And, and the rest of our text this morning unpack, unpacks and diagnoses and wrestles with expectations, un, all those expectations at play. And I see three things in our passage this morning. Story, stumbling block, and state of the heart. Story, stumbling block, and state of the heart. And I think uh, not only in helping understand this passage, those three, these three things will help us wrestling with our expectations of the faith. Look at verse 21. In that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, go and tell John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one, we'll talk about this more in a minute, blessed is the one who's not offended by me. His answer back to John is basically a Bible study. He invites John to have a little Bible study because he starts quoting bits and pieces out of the book of Isaiah. Now, John wouldn't have known the entire Old Testament, but you better believe most Jews walking around knew a good bit of Isaiah. And he's trying to get John to connect the dots here because John, John basically is in the wrong part of the story. He's kind of got the story of what's going on with God's purposes and plans in the world. He's just got a, he's a little off. Think with me about this. Um, think with me about this. What was prominent in John's preaching in the Gospels? Remember? Let me take us back to Luke 3. Remember John preached this. Even now the ax is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clean out his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his storehouse. What do you hear there? The, one of the underlying tones of John's, John's preaching was judgment. Judgment. Now, that's not to say that Jesus isn't the rightful king and judge, 
But it's no wonder he's confused at this point because Jesus comes on the scene and what is he doing? He's ministering and healing and blessing. My goodness, he just, he just healed a Roman centurion in the last passage. And that doesn't look like what John expected. John was expecting, a, and most of the Jews are expecting the Messiah to come clean house. And here's this missionary on a mission of mercy and blessing and, and ministry to Gentiles and Jews alike. That wasn't what he expected. Ian Howard Marshall, one of my favorite New Testament scholars, a Scottish New Testament scholar, put it like this. Jesus' answer was an invitation. I love that. An invitation to John to reconsider in light of Scripture in order that he, John, may trust who Jesus is and what he's doing. If John had the New Testament, we could, we could point him to Galatians 3. Galatians 3 saying, and the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to, beforehand to Abraham. This was always how it was gonna be all the way back to Abraham. Preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you all the nations will be blessed. The idea was always that Israel would bless other nations and be a light to other nations. It seems like John is forgetting that little part of the story we're in. Looking down, look at verse 24. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Jesus, Jesus praises John here. John's important. John's important in the plan of God. John is at a, he is the pivot point, really, of the story of God in the world. A pivot point, certainly between the old covenant and the new covenant, but a pivot point bringing in a new part, bringing in the kingdom. Remember, it says the kingdom is coming and the kingdom is near to you. But look on at, at verse 28 there. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Now that is really interesting because that's talking about you and me. We are greater than John the Baptist. How about that? Put that on your Facebook. I'm Kevin, I'm from North Carolina, I love barbecue, and I'm greater than John the Baptist. <laughs> now, what does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean that we're more valuable. It doesn't say anything about status, but what I think it means is this is about resources and revelation, blessings and benefit at this part of the story. We have things John never had. The full revelation of Jesus Christ, his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. And we got a whole lot of promise and hope and ideas about his coming again. John didn't have all that. John didn't have the spirit of God indwelling. He didn't have the church, the spirit indwelt people of God around him on mission. And the completed New Testament, the, the spirit breathed word on paper that we now have complete. We have so much blessing and benefit and resources and revelation in this part of the story of God's redemptive activity that John never had. Is every injustice reconciled right now in this part of the story? Nope. Is every sorrow wiped away yet in this part of the story? Nope. Is every sickness dealt with right now in this part of the story? Nope. Is there plenty of things left un, 
done at this part of the story? Yeah, in our experience. At this part of the story, not yet, but it's coming. And so much, I think, of our, our, our wrestling with expectation can be relieved just remembering where we are in the story of God, where we are in the story of God's redemptive activity, and where we are right now as the people of God, armed with the word of God and dwelt with the spirit of God on the mission of God to proclaim the gospel of God and the coming kingdom of God. It's a good part of the story to be in, a good part. But... There is a stumbling block in the story. Next point in your outline, the stumbling block. Look with me at uh, verse 23, going back up a little bit. The strange beatitude that Jesus says in his answer, blessed is the one who's not offended by me. Blessed is the one who's not offended by me. Jesus recognizes his own offensiveness, as it were. And this was predicted. This was predicted too long ago. Uh, Isaiah 8, 14. Remember that another, little, another little piece out of Isaiah. It says this. He, the Messiah, the coming Messiah, will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. This was always going to be tough. This was always predicted to be tough for the people of Israel, for the Jews to accept Jesus as who he is. A few weeks ago, uh, sometimes when you're preparing like a lesson or a story or a teaching, um, these things kind of drop in your lap. This is kind of interesting. A few weeks ago, uh, I saw this YouTube program. Many of you, I bet, know Ben Shapiro. Uh, ben Shapiro is a brilliant young man. Uh, uh, you've probably seen him on some political commentary shows. I don't bring him up for his politics as much as for the fact that he's an Orthodox Jew, a practicing Orthodox Jew, not a Messianic Jew, but a practicing zealous Orthodox Jew. And a few weeks ago, he had William Lane Craig on his YouTube program. It's a sit down interview program with William Lane Craig. William Lane Craig, I would put in like the top 10 most brilliant Christians walking around the planet right now. Uh, He's a top 50 philosopher, was voted that a couple years ago, not Christian philosophers, just philosophers. Brilliant, brilliant man, amazing interview. They cover so much ground in that interview. I I would highly recommend you watch it, but if for nothing else, tune into the last 10 minutes because Ben sets him up to give his testimony. William Lane Craig, Dr. Craig gives his testimony and it is just beautiful to hear this intellectually stunning man just be so joyous about the gospel and coming to Christ. That's in the last 10 minutes. But about halfway through, they start talking about Jesus. Of course, you knew that was going to come up at some point. And I thought this is so interesting. Ben, of course, is saying, you know what? I can't get on on board with this thing about Jesus. And he says this, and Lord, my eyesight is never going to be able to read that. So I'm going to read this. Um, In the Gospels, Jesus' vision of himself as a Messiah, this is Ben talking, as a Messiah, is completely different from the prior vision of what the Jewish Messiah is. The Messiah has always been a political figure destined to do things like restoring the kingdom of Israel. The idea of the Messiah as the embodiment of God is foreign to Jewish religious philosophy, Philosophy going all the way back to the beginning. And Ben thinks he makes a salient point there, but it's funny because William Lane says, you know what? I actually agree with you, Ben, 100%. The Jews didn't, weren't expecting somebody like Jesus. In fact, the New Testament and even Jesus himself leads a couple Bible studies with some Pharisees pointing out how they missed it in the Old Testament. Amazing, right? All 2,000 years later, still the same malaise and confusion about expectation about who Jesus is, a rock of offense, a stumbling block for the house of Israel. 
Look with me at, uh, at verse 29. When the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized. Some of the people rejected. Yes, that was predicted. But some of the people, interesting word, declared God just. Now for you theology nerds out there, this is the same word for justification. And you're like, well, how, does, how do people justify God? Well, it's a declaration. It's literally saying, God's right. God's right. And then they identify with John. It says in baptism, they're identifying, saying, yeah, what's going on here is right. This is of God. Dallas Willard, one of my favorite uh, authors and philosophers, I keep coming back to this thought. He says, a disciple of Jesus is first convinced of this. Jesus is right Jesus is right. And sure, this beatitude here talks about offense that leads to rejection, but guaranteed, that doesn't mean that Jesus is never offensive even after you accept him for who he is. In fact, we're guaranteed that in a life of faith, in a life of faith of following Christ, something's going to offend us about him, about his teachings. Something in this word is going to be offensive to our souls. Following Christ, is, the metaphor is dying to self, not slipping into a warm bath. Christ-likeness being formed in me feels offensive because I got a whole lot of Christ-not-likeness fighting back. And you know what that is? That's, that's my self-sufficiency, my self-righteousness, my self standing against, standing against all the ways, Jesus is standing against all the ways that I would love to build salvation and rightness all on my own. Tim Keller says it so good in his book, Reason for God. I gotta turn around again. Now, what happens if you eliminate anything from the Bible that offends your sensibility and crosses your will? If you pick and choose what you wanna believe and reject the rest, how will you ever have a God who can contradict you? You won't. You'll have a God essentially of your own making and not a God with whom you can have a relationship and genuine interaction. Only if your God can say things that outrage you and make you struggle, I love this, as in a real friendship or marriage, will you know that you've gotten hold of a real God and not a figment of your imagination. The real Jesus encountering him through his real word will be really offensive to our really sinful self sometimes but these are the wounds of a friend. And related to that and about that, we get to our last point in our outline. Jesus swoops in here at the end of this text and gives the big heart diagnosis. Look with me at uh, verse 31. Pick up reading there. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation and what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace calling to one another. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine. And you say, he has a demon. The son of man has come eating and drinking. And you say, look, look at him. He, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. We know that culturally back then, they had markets, kind of like uh, the, the farmer's market down here on the square. 
the city would come together, people would come together, and there'd be a market of things you can buy and shop for. And we know that culturally in the center of these markets, a lot of times there'd be a space and children would kind of collect there and play there while their parents took care of business. And often what they would play, you know, like we grew up playing fireman and lawyer and doctor and whatnot, policeman, uh, they would play, the two biggest things on their social, you know, uh, social events in their time was wedding and funeral. So the kids would get together and play wedding and funeral. We played the flute for you. You didn't dance. Wedding. We sang a dirge. You didn't weep. Funeral. So Jesus is basically saying, you know what your problem is? You're like a bunch of kids, a bunch of bratty kids who won't listen to each other. Sometimes preachers and scholars have called this the parable of the brats. Now, I know your kids are never like this, but I've had kids, I've, not you, Carly, not you, baby. Um, uh, <laughs> that one child, it doesn't matter. You could promise them Disney tickets for life and they're not gonna look at a camera and say cheese. Sometimes kids are just not going to do what you want them to do. And that's basically what Jesus is saying about them. So, you know, it didn't matter it wouldn't have mattered how we came to you, what message or what ministry, the form of menace we, we came to you with, John or Jesus, all this outward asceticism of, of John or, or this ministry and power and mercy of Jesus. It didn't matter what form it would have taken. You'd have rejected it anyway. Why? Because you just, that's what you want to do. And sometimes you just want what you want. And here's the, the, here's the heart issue, the universal heart issue in all people, what it boils down to. We want the flute. We want the flute. We want to be the flutist, the flautist. See, I don't understand that. <laughs> you play the guitar, you're a guitarist. You play the drums, you're a drummer. You play the flute, you're a flautist, a flautist. We want the flute. Why? Because the one who holds the flute controls what game's being played. The one who holds the flute sets the tune that everybody else has to dance to. And recalibrating our expectations involves constantly reminding ourselves, even though we want it, we really don't want the flute. We want the better flautist. Jesus is our flautist. Somebody make that t-shirt. Jesus is my flautist. We often just, I often just, we need, our, we need our wants to change, our very wants to change. And nothing can be more encouraging and hope-giving than the fact that over time, the Spirit of God, He does indeed work on and shape and mold and melt our wants. I don't want the flute as much as I did 10 years ago. I pray to God I don't want it 10 years from now like I do now. Slowly over time, Jesus is the better flautist. Jonathan Edwards talked about it like this. He said, you know, there's something that happens in the life of a believer around our wants. When we slowly, by the Spirit of God, stop wanting Jesus for his benefits, stop wanting Jesus as a means to an end, but rather an end unto himself. When Jesus stops being just useful to us and starts being beautiful to us. We could say to John in that cell, John, buddy, in that prison cell, John, I know you want judgment. Jesus is so much more beautiful than the judgment you're looking for. He's actually going to take judgment on himself. That's, he's better. 
You could say the Pharisee, say, look, yeah, he shares a table with tax collectors and sinners. That's true. He's going to do you one better. He's going to become sin so you could sit sinless with him at the table for eternity. He's so much more beautiful and better than you can imagine. We don't want the flute. We want the better flautist. We can close with that old hymn. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. I know some of y'all love it when we get into a hymn. Love that old hymn. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim. That's a goofy line. Strangely dim. I don't like that line. I think, I think it's better said, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth, the things we experience on this earth right now, this part of the story, where we've come from, where we're going, where we've been, the things of earth, our desires, the things of earth, our expectations of a life of faith around us will grow strangely crystal clear, actually, in the light of his glory and grace. Pray with me this morning.